You, Kyle, and Dr. Belinsky are to probe the situation in Paris, determine the extent of Nebulon's power base there, and crush it if you can. You, Val, and Mr. Cage shall investigate the mass murders in India, ascertain whether any connection exists between those mindless slayings and our foes scheming. Leaving that mad Washington world to me, it'll be intriguing to observe whether my carefully cultivated bedside manner proves as reassuring to presidents as to patients. My name is Conrad, and welcome to the 14th episode of Stranger by the Dozen, a weekly podcast where we recap the adventures of Dr. Stephen Strange, Master of the Mystic Arts, 12 issues at a time. This week, I'd like to welcome back Drew to the show. Welcome back, man. Hey, hey. All right. You can find the show on iTunes, the Google Play Store, Stitcher, and any fine podcast app. You can contact the podcast at strangerbythedozen at gmail.com. On Twitter, at StrangerByThe12, at StrangerByThe12, on Tumblr, at StrangerByTheDozen.tumblr.com, or on Facebook or Instagram by searching for StrangerByTheDozen. Give the show a five-star review, and I'll read that review on the air. Hey, and we do have a review this week from CodeViking85. Fantastically strange. Five stars. This podcast is fantastic. Easily the best way to learn about Doctor Strange through the years. Totally made my list of podcasts I listen to during my commute or while I'm at work. And I just want to say that Drew is extremely funny and has a great voice. Just so dreamy. Easily the best guest on the podcast. Like, without a doubt. Man, this guy sounds like he knows what he's talking about. Was this review helpful? Yes? All right. <laughs> anyway. Hey, everybody else should leave a review, too. That'd be really nice. Absolutely. Even if you aren't on the show. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> so this week, if you want to read along with the podcast, uh, just so you know, we're getting to the point where it's getting kind of challenging, actually. This week's Defenders issues are collected in Essential Defenders 5, and the first three podcast issues are in Marvel Masterworks Defenders 5. You can find the rest of the issues in Essential Incredible Hulk Volume 6 and Essential Marvel Team-Up Volume 2. These issues are not on Marvel Unlimited at all. Also, before we start, I'd like to give a quick shout-out to the Marvel's the Marvel Comics Chronology at SuperMegaMonkey.net for their recaps of a ton of comics in this era. It's allowed me to figure out the backstory to several of the comics in this issue without having to dive deep into confusing wikis or having to purchase additional background comics. <laughs> so before we start, let me just recap everybody. The Defenders are fighting a battle on two fronts. They're against both the super scientist group known as the Headmen, made up of Gorilla Man, Arthur Nagin, Shrunken Bones, Gerald Morgan, Chandu the Mystic, now in a crazy monster body, and Ruby, a, la a lady with a shape-changing gumball for a head. And they're also up against Nebulon, a gold-skinned space hunk currently running a self-help organization called Celestial Mind Control. Or Meanwhile, the Defenders, including Doctor Strange, the Incredible Hulk, Valkyrie, Nighthawk, Luke Cage, and random jerk Jack Norris, have to contend with the, in their own increasingly erratic powers and tempers, especially the first three members of the team, for some reason that's not super clear. Also, somewhere out there, it's an out for the gun killing people. So let's get to the issues. Wait, what was that last part? Uh, Drew, Defenders 40 oh, from wait. October 1976. What's that last part? It's just that... You, uh, okay. Defenders issue 40 from October. Let's see. Love, Anarchy, and oh yes, The Assassin. Steve Gerber, writer. Sal Buscema and Claus Jansen, artist. And Archie Goodwin, editor. 
Also a Joe Rosen letterer and Klaus Janssen colorist. Ah, right. We open up on a uh, courtroom scene where it appears that uh, Valkyrie is getting acquitted for all the mayhem she's been causing recently. Yeah, yeah. Her uh, her good works in the prison riot have helped her earn her acquittal. And, Hooray! And everyone's having a good time, except for Jack Norris. Yeah, that dude's a, whatever. That dude's such a jerk. <laughs> yeah, the other big thing is that as a reward for getting out of prison, um, Valkyrie gets a new costume. Hooray! Oh, yeah. Oh, this is true for most people. There's one thing I learned from The Sopranos is that when you get out of prison, people should give you a new outfit. That's what happened. That's what didn't happen to Steve Buscemi. That's why he went um, crazy. <laughs> but so her new outfit is like all gold and stuff. It's like a gold, like one piece bathing suit, basically with like gold um, thigh high boots and a blue cape. And it's universally disliked by everyone. <laughs> uh, she'll be back to her to her old outfit in like three issues. You'll see. Hey, man, I like the gold. It's pretty great. I, I think it's classy. Uh, it's a, I mean, it's fine. It's, you know, it's not popular. I'll say that much. Yeah, well, <laughs> everyone has their opinion, I guess. Yeah. Something. And meanwhile, Jack Norris continues his um, like, hey, I'm, I'm married to you. We should... Uh, Get together and stuff. And Valkyrie's like, no way. Get out of here. I don't like you. Piss off, nerd. It's true. Ah. So, we continue with Valkyrie being acquitted, getting her stuff back, and finding out that, you know, local precincts don't like to keep around whatever the hell she was wearing. Yeah. That's why she needs the new out- the new gold outfit, because the old one got tossed by the cops. Lousy cops. No respect, man. No respect. <laughs> and, of course, returning to the house of Doctor Strange, where she's presented with... From- with a gift from Clea, which is the new outfit, which is like all golden. Yeah. And of course, we have, once again, Jack, Jack Norris being mopey as ever. Yeah. The uh, line of the night from Jack Norris is, uh, you, 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 you keep playing a woman warrior. Why don't you want to play house instead? Valkyrie's like, I am who I am. I don't like you. Man, this guy is such like Every single time he pops up, it's like, ugh. Anyway, elsewhere, Doctor Strange is hanging out in the park. Yeah, he's, you know, his powers have been on the fritz recently, and so in a couple episodes he's been, like, meditating to himself to try to figure out what's going on. So this time he's hanging out park, and he almost gets hit with a baseball. But he blocks it magically! Yeah, he totally does, ah. and he freaks out a kid! Because, you know, what else do you do while you're in a park? And he also stops by a speech engage- engagement by a senator who may use his powers to depansify him. Yeah, the important thing for actually the next couple issues is that you know, it's like the fall of 1976, and the big, and the presidential election is sort of raging. You know, and it's a you know it's you know it's memo for people not alive in 1976 like me. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's kind of a contested election because you know it's a uh, it's Gerald Ford versus Jimmy Carter, and you know Ford got in office because Nixon either resigned in our world or killed himself in front of uh, Captain America in the Oval Office in the Marvel Comics world. So so because it's sort of two people who hadn't been previously voted on it feels a little more wide open than a, than the usual ele- election does, you know. Yeah. But so we're seeing this dude Winthrop running for US or for r- running for US senator. Dr. Strange pants magically. While he's on stage, it's pretty boss. I mean, if I had magic powers, that's what I'd be doing all the time, just pantsing. Absolutely. Yeah. But all, the, uh, an important thing is that while Dr. Strange is here, he also buys a, uh, a newspaper, and he sees two plot lines that we have previously not seen but are going to be important. Yes. And one is that uh, Nebulon, in his, doc, in his Mr. Nebul for, form, is being named to be the UN envoy for the United States, which is like a big position. 
And then the other one is that this lady named uh, Ruby Thursday has announced her candidacy for presidency. Because she's just some crazy lady out of California running for president. Yeah. And this is, of course, despite the fact that October is way too late to get on the ballot in most states. Oh, yeah. Unless, you know, crazy things are happening in the election, which never happens. But, I mean, really, like, October's too late to declare your presidency. you got to declare it in the summer. Oh, yeah, totally. Right? you got to do that stuff way early. <laughs> anyway, enough politics. Meanwhile. Yeah. Meanwhile, in the American Southwest, Hulk's feeling bad for reasons that'll become clear later. And he comes across a bunch of ladies protesting at a movie theater that's showing a uh, purported snuff film called Waste. Uh, this angers the Hulk, and he attacks the theater, eventually relenting, and he realizes that he's actually acting er- erratically, even for the Hulk, and jumps away. He totally, totally has that moment of, wait, why did I just do that? Yeah. Huh. One of the protesters has fled for safety into the theater's bathroom, but she's not alone in there, as there's also an elf with a gun! Blam! Wait, hold up. Okay. I, we did this last week, and now we're doing it again. Okay, so back at the Sanctum Sanctorum. No, wait, no, hold up. Some guy or someone throws a brick through the window of the Sanctum with a note that basically says, like, uh, get out of here, communist. (sighs) Everyone's super pissed, especially Valkyrie. She's, like, off the deep end. She wants to destroy some folks. And she totally crushes that rock with her hand, just, like, barehanded. Yeah, but then then Red Guardian, who we'll remember is uh, visiting neurosurgeon and superhero Tanya Belinsky from the USSR, decides to give chase instead. Yep. Meanwhile, uh, Jack Norris does some more whining. He does super whining, dude. Yeah. He, he whines so much that Nighthawk, like, grabs his shirt and, like, what's it going to take you to get out of to get out of here and stop your whining forever? Oh, I don't know, $300,000. Boom. Literally. Done. 300000 which you'll be happy to know I looked up on the internet, and 300000 bucks is like $1.2 million that's a, today. That's a decent payoff. Yeah, it's not bad. You know, for not being whiny in the general vicinity. Yeah. Anyhow, Nighthawk, being a rich guy, like gives him a cashier check, and Jack Norris is out of here for good. Woo! Oh, thank God. Thank <laughs> goodness. That guy's never going to show up in this comic ever again. No, he's whining up some... Yeah. Uh, anyway, meanwhile... A lot of meanwhiles in this era of comics, I'm not going to lie. Oh, yeah, totally. Meanwhile, Red Guardian chases the guys that threw the rock. And totally chases... And they're like... Yeah, chases him down an alleyway and, like, knocks him out. Yeah, it's good. But then in a in classic New York fashion, as a superhero beats someone up in the in an alleyway, an old lady leans out of her window and is like, "What's that ruckus down there, you kids? You crazy kids! You're causing so much noise out there. You bothered my sciatica." Yeah. So Red Guardian uh, shouts back at this old lady, say like, "Hey, I caught some I caught some thugs or some you know hoods, whatever. They're dudes in uh, nylon masks. Like, can I come up there and use your phone?" And the old lady's like, sure. And it's totally not typical New York fashion. But, so then Red Guardian carries this hood up to the old lady's uh, apartment. And it turns out the old lady's in on the scheme and pulls a gun on the Red Guardian. Because everyone has a gun. And everyone's in yep. on it. That's the important part. Yep. And they all... And so Red, the, oh, a couple more goons show up and they all try to take out Red Guardian. Yeah, including a crazy uh, masked assassin kind of guy. Yeah. But the Red Guardian manages to escape... Her and this big assassin guy have a big, um, like, chase through the streets of New York. And we learn that the Guardian guy has robot fists, yeah. which is pretty cool. Yeah, and he totally gets himself stuck in, himself stuck in a garage door. 
And so because of this, Red Guardian sort of pieces out or no, and just dips back to the Sanctum. Yep. Heads back to the Sanctum where she re- meets up with everyone again and just, you know, says that everything's going crazy, you guys. I don't know. Yeah. Doctor Strange agrees that things are getting weird. And so, every, and so the whole team agrees to repair back to the upstate New York Defenders base where Aragorn's stables and stuff like that. And, of course, Doctor Strange asks where Jack Norris is because he seems to be the only one who actually wants him around. <laughs> it's like, did I say something wrong? He's like, no, he's out. No, he's gone. Just whatever, Good whatever man. <laughs> yeah, the funny thing about this subplot with the assassin after Red Guardian is that it kind of doesn't go anywhere. Yeah. Like that that assassin that attacked her is never seen again in the Marvel Universe, no, for instance. That, that whole thing just kind of peters out. Yeah. It's like a, a but, brief commentary on the Red Scare in America and then gone. Done. Right. Yeah, the, the mid-70s Red Scare, which is the least scary of the Red Scares. Yeah. But uh, speaking of things not going out with them, we go to Defenders Annual 1 from November 1976, where things go out with a bang. In has the wor- in world gone sane? Steve Gerber, writer, Sal Buscema and Klaus Jansen, artists, John Costanza, letterer, Don Warfield, colorist, Archie Goodwin, editor. The final battle! Aw, yeah. Yeah. This issue starts with Jack Norris on the on a view screen giving a ton of exposition. Oh, man. Boo! Boo! Boo, Boo this man! <laughs> Seriously. He uh, recaps last ten, epi- 10 issues or so of The Defenders, so basically last, I- last episode, then explains some stuff that might have passed the characters by. Uh, one is that the main Defenders, Do- uh, Dr. Strange, the Hulk, and, Va- and Valkyrie, have been acting erratically recently, and Jack Norris explains that while he was in Nighthawk's body, and the headman thought he was Chandra the Mystic, it's complicated... <laughs> <laughs> he uh, he saw the evil headmen put metal helmets on uh, Doctor Strange, Hulk, and Valkyrie, and do like some kind of experiment to them, and that these two things might be linked. FYI, Slight, he also slightly altering their thought patterns. Only slightly, yeah, though. De- just slightly, just a little bit. It's definitely something that sort of happened and was and hasn't been remarked on since. So it's kind of interesting, yeah. sort of that he managed to put this together eventually. He also tells us some general world news that has not come up yet. Which is one or two things that we kind of learned a little bit last issue, but they go more in depth here. So one is that the head of Celestial Mind Control, uh, the disguised Nebulon, is being named the U.S.'s envoy to the U.N. Two is there's a new presidential candidate that people like in California named Ruby Thursday. Three is that the bozos of the CMC cult are basically taking over France completely. And four is that there's been a rash of assassinations of people in India. On the, through the view screen, Norris posits that all of these things are related as either schemes of the headmen or of Nebulon. Norris himself is headed out to California to deal with Ruby Thursday, using the money from last issue to do spy stuff. And so because of this, Doctor Strange starts teleporting people around to deal with the other problems. You know, without their consent or anything. So that's cool. Hey, they're superheroes. They go where they they go where they're needed. So Nighthawk and Red Guardian are off to Paris to handle the bozos. Luke Cage and Valkyrie are sent to India to check out on these mass murders. And Doctor Strange dons suit and tie to fly to Washington to get President Ford to rethink giving Nebulon any kind of power. Yeah. Break. So this goes into a chapter format, which is kind of funny. Chapter one. Five million bozo. Can't be wrong. 
and it's 50 million, but whatever. Yeah. So in Paris, it seems like the Bozo or Bozo with an X <laughs> have reached a ton of power and are currently like basically guillotining people in the in the Champs-Élysées. You know, you know, that's perfectly fine. Why not? Hey, that's what the French do. They guillotine people. Yeah, public executions. Woo. Yeah. They're about to uh, guillotine an enemy of the Bozos when Nighthawk and Red Guardian intervene. They grab this guy and they kidnap a lady, a lady Bozo. Uh, it turns out that the guillotine, that the guy about to be guillotined is a PR guy for a think tank, the Campagne de Lux, the Campaign of Light. And we'll check into this later. First, Red Guardian changes into the clothes of the female Bozo and infiltrates Bozo French HQ, the Chateau de Bozo. And it's full of fish dudes, the Ludberdites from last episode, the minions of Nebulon. Uh, Nebul- uh, disguised Red Guardian talks to uh, disguised Nebulon on like a video screen and gets led deeper into the Bozo complex. Uh, meanwhile, Nighthawk realizes that the head of the Campaign of Light is actually Arthur Nagin, Gorilla Man of the Headmen. Oh, no. Yeah, and the campaign has apparently infiltrated every aspect of society, from the auto industry to the Indian government. Nighthawk is thus worried, or Nighthawk kind of becomes worried about Valkyrie and Luke in India, so he goes to grab the Red Guardian, and when he tries to, and when he tries to get her, the entire... Bozo Chateau is enveloped in gas and disappears. Nighthawk investigates and is confronted by Jerry Morgan, a shrunken bones of the headmen, and he informs Nighthawk that the Bozos and Red Guardian are gone forever. Nighthawk's displeased by this and lashes out, gets a face full of gas, and disappears as well. Which, on that cliffhanger, takes us to Chapter 2. Chapter 2. One little, two little, 500 million little Indians. Yeah. I don't know. A lot is made about the problem of overcrowding and poverty in India, although it kind of seems quaint now as the population has increased almost threefold since this uh, comic came yeah, out. Yeah, 500 million is not that much. <laughs> uh, so we see a street preacher sort of and people li- listening to him, you know, in some back alley when suddenly he's shot by another by a gas gun and they all disappear. And Luke Cage and Valkyrie are on the case. They chase down the gunman, revealing a metal case that he's carrying. Inside the case, all the people from the shrink from the street scene shrunk down to the size of like I don't know, like Lego minifigs. I think something like that. You know, smaller smaller than action figures is is how I describe yeah. them. Yeah, yeah. The pair are then uh conf- are the pair are confused until. Arthur Nagin, Gorilla Man from the Headmen, reveals himself and shows up with some goons asking for the case back. It's fight time. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Nagin and Luke Cage go toe-to-toe with Nagin making, like, a pretty horrifying joke about how despite uh, his gorilla body, his white, his white guy head makes him civilized, while Luke Cage is full of jungle blood, which is like, holy crap, that is racist. Come on, 1970s Marvel, what? These guys... I mean, it's a bad guy. Yeah. Let's let's be clear about that. He's a bad guy being bad. Yeah, I know. Still, though. Um, this, like, drives Luke Cage into a rage, and he kind of gets distracted by that and the general poverty of India and gets hit by the gas, by another gas gun. Meanwhile, Val fights sort of the general goons, 
and as they fight, it becomes clear that these goons are true believers in their cause, which is to shrink the entire population of India so that it uses less resources? Sure. What? I... Anyhow, <laughs> Val is also gassed and shrunk, and both heroes are put in the box with everyone else. This is getting weird. Or at least, I mean, it's as weird as it usually is, I guess. <laughs> So we go to Chapter 3. Chapter 3. Jack Norris, Secret Agent. Or really, the worst secret agent. Yeah. So this part is told all first-person narration style. And apparently Jack Norris is now some kind of smooth secret agent guy. I don't believe it. In his, like, purple and blue tuxedo. Yeah, I really don't believe it. I don't know. It, it's terrible. He ends up at the palatial mansion of Ruby Thursday, a red-headed lady with pigtails and a corncob pipe that is running for president. Again, despite announcing in October and clearly being under 35 years old. <laughs> this subplot to me really came out of nowhere and is very confusing. Anyhow, it turns out that Ruby Thursday is in fact Ruby from the Headmen. And according to the uh, Marvel Wikia, her name is actually Thursday Rubenstein. Man. So freak out. <laughs> oh, man. So Jack Norris ends up being captured, but Ruby's campaign is ruined, I guess. Okay, let's go move on. Right. Chapter four. Chapter four. All the president's menaces. Ah, it's fun. Yeah. So uh, before Gerald Ford can announce the appointment of Mr. Nebul, Nebulon in disguise, he is magically teleported into your standard Doctor Strange dimension of like floating rocks and stuff. Yeah, it's good times. He has a place to hang out, you know. Yeah, with the president. Strange tries to convince Ford not to appoint Nebul, and then Nebulon himself shows up in the dimension. And the two of them get in, like, an argument about the nature of free will and the ethics of outside races uplifting others. Like, basically, watch any, like, Q episode of Star Trek The Next Generation. And that's basically the general gist of this. Yeah, you're, 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 you're right there. Yeah. So anyhow, they go back to the real world, and Ford's kind of unswayed by the, by the arguments of Doctor Strange, who's about to name Nebel as you an envoy. Until Doctor Strange shows up and magically gags him on live TV. With like a steel band around his yeah. mouth. But then the entire White House and everyone in it is hit by the headman shrink fog and disappears. And now I don't understand like the transition here. Yeah. I'm just going to go with it because it seems like a fair amount of the world, or at least Washington, D.C., has now been shrunken by the gas and sits in some kind of sealed terrarium at Headmen HQ. So there's like a thing that's coming up uh, that just doesn't really make any sense to me. I'll I'll like bring it up when we get there. Please, yeah. yeah. But so basically, there's this big like glass dome the size of I don't know, like the size of a conference table, I'd say, with like a magnifying glass on top of it, and the magnifying glass is focused on the White House lawn where the entire Defenders team is, has, now, uh, joined, has now converged, along with Nebulon, and they're sort of trying to shoot their way out of the dome, but the dome's sealed so they can't get out. All right? Like, that's as clear as it's going to get. That's all I can say. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, yeah, it's the entire Defenders team plus Nebulon and Jack Norris, and they're trying to figure it out. Jack Norris is being a real jerk and pulling crazy jerk faces throughout this whole thing. It's terrible. He's being a real smug jerk during this entire thing. It's, he's, he's super smug. He's, he's the worst character. 
Anyhow, despite being tiny, Doctor Strange has a plan. And that plan? Oh, it's the Standards Defenders plan, which is to remotely contact the Hulk and have him burst through the wall Kool-Aid Man style. Oh, yeah! (laughs) And it works, as usual. I mean, that's why it's the plan. Uh, Hulk comes crashing in. He uh, smashes up the terrarium, which allows the Defenders to go free. Okay, here's the part I don't understand. Yo, so all these people have been shrunk down and put into the terrarium, right? Yes. Why is there only so few of them that are actually like growing to full size? Oh, dude, it says so. Uh, after Doctor Strange regains his physical form after astral per after astrally calling the Hulk, it says, um, blah, 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 blah. yes, a subtle gesture, a whispered, a a whispered phrase, and all but the principles in the struggle have vanished. He magicked it, bro. All right. All right. The interesting thing, and the, I think the key thing, Drew, yeah. is that as opposed to pretty much any other big act of magic we've seen from Doctor Strange, he does not brainwash the world after this. So basically the world knows that they were shrunk down, put into the giant terrarium, and then grown back. They to- know at least large swaths of India and the White House was. And everyone has now, and there's now file footage of Doctor Strange um, magically gagging the president on live TV. Sure, why not? That sounds fine. So I don't know if that'll come up again. It does. It doesn't seem like it does. Nah, it's but it's not that big of a deal. Fine. Just fine. an FYI. Yeah. <laughs> it's fine. But yeah, uh, you know, Doctor Strange teleports all the Indians and bozos and presidents and stuff back home, back to their respective homes. Like it's no big deal. It is no big deal for him. And, I mean, that sort of bears out in the fight, too, because the fight between sort of the assembled Defenders team plus Nebulon and the headmen takes, like, two panels. Like, no, this is an easy fight. Like, longer is Doctor Strange using the Eye of Agamotto to beam the history of humanity into Nebulon's brain, something the eye of, like, Dr. Strange is aware of having seen the Earth rebuild from scratch at least two times. Multiple times at this point. Isn't it more like four? I mean, it's four that he's witnessed, or it's four, it's maybe three that he's witnessed. He wasn't there for when the magic harmonica destroyed the Earth and then the thing rebuilt. Oh, right, right. And he also wasn't there when the the hobo ate a sandwich and destroyed and rebuilt. Man, that didn't happen. Well... I don't want to say never. Anyhow, <laughs> but so in sort of, again, kind of cue on, on Star Trek TNG style, Nebulon sees sort of the history of humanity and Doctor Strange is like, hey, like the parts of our human nature that you call our bozo nature is actually what lets us grow and strive to be better. It makes us essentially human. And Nebulon is like, you guys are terrible. Humanity is the worst thing I've ever seen in my life. I'm out of here. He's not wrong. Hey, good riddance, you beautiful jerk. <laughs> and that's the issue. Everyone's hash has been settled. Victory Defenders. And just in time for Steve Gerber's last issue in Defenders 41, everything is all tied up. 100%. No loose strings at all. Help with a gun? What? Hey, Marvel Team-Up number 50. No, wait, hold up. October 1976. No, <laughs> the Mystery Within. Peerless Prose by Mil- Bill Mantlo. Pulse-pounding pictures by Sal Buscema and Mike Esposito. Patient prodding by Archie Goodwin editor. Karen Mantlo letterer. Janice Cohen colorist. So here's the deal with Marvel Team-Up number 50, Drew. Yeah. Is that... It is part three of a four-part series. 
in the previous two episodes, uh, Spider-Man and Iron Man teamed up to investigate a series of bombings around the city uh, perpetrated by a robot plane. They actually managed to avoid the usual misunderstanding fight, which is which is actually kind of funny. That's her thing. Yeah, well, it's because Spider-Man like basically yells at Iron Man and says like, "We've been teaming up for like the last like 15 years, and you still think I'm a bad guy? Like, you can't take my word for it once that I'm not responsible for these plane bombings. Like, why would I do plane bombings? These planes aren't even spider-themed. Like, what are you doing, buddy? Talk to any Avenger who I've teamed up with at least five times, and they'll tell you that I'm a good guy." <laughs> And uh, the two also consult with New York City police captain uh, Gene DeWolf, who has a sweet roadster and doesn't take crap from anybody, not even her father, Philip DeWolf, who isn't super pleased his daughter is captain of his old precinct. Yeah, uh, this guy's he's terrible. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> Meanwhile, uh, both Iron and Spider-Man discover that the fellow behind these bombings is a supervillain called the Wraith who has psychic powers. Also, Philip DeWolf has received a note from the Wraith written in the handwriting of his son and Gene brother and Gene's brother, Brian, who was a cop who died in the line of duty two years ago. So now we're all caught up. Let's go. All right. Yeah. So since the letter that they received calls Brian's death into question, Spider-Man heads to the Sanctum Sanctorum to consult with Dr. Strange about the death of Brian DeWolf as Iron Man heads to his super-secret crime lab to analyze the letter from the Wraith. We learn also that uh, Jean heavily suspects that her father is the Wraith, and that he uh, delivered the letter to throw her off the scent. So she goes to break into the DeWolf family crypt as the Wraith enters his underground lair, and we learn he is being controlled by an unseen force. So meanwhile, at the scene of Brian's death, uh, Doctor Strange uses magic to recreate the crime scene, kind of Minority Report style or something. And we see uh, a wounded Brian being carried off by the ghostly image of his dad, Philip DeWolf, just as Tony Stark matches the fingerprints to find out that the letter that was received was actually sent by Philip as well. So everything's pointing to Philip DeWolf, and it makes sense. As down in the crypt, Gene confronts down in the DeWolf family crypt, which turns out to be the Wraith headquarters, uh, Jean con con confronts the Wraith, and her father reveals himself as the big evil. Ha! So it all works out. What? Yeah. He removes the Wraith's mask, and oh no! We cliffhanger as Doctor Strange and Spider-Man are also entering the crypt, and they get, like, accosted by mentally controlled spectral arms, and then get zapped by the Wraith, and are taken hostage waking up tied to boards and being hit by paralysis beams. As this happens, Philip once again reveals the faith of the, of the Wraith, and this time we see that it's Brian DeWolf in some kind of crazy catatonic state. Like, seriously, just dead-eyed, just like... Uh... Yeah. Uh, and, and so, be because the heroes are tied up, basically, it's time for... It's time to get monologuing and talk about what's happened. Aw, uh, yeah. Standard Villainy 101. Gotta. Like, Marvel Team-Up is the home of Standard Villainy. It really... Like, there's no... There's never any nuance in here. <laughs> it's just a bunch of superheroes teaming up, fighting generic bad guys. It's good times. Or at least this issue is actually... Next issue is pretty, pretty unusual. But the basic story is that Brian was killed in the line of duty... But Philip, like, stole the, his son's body before it could be picked up by the coroner. 
and with the help of some super scientist buddies, tried to raise Brian from the dead. But instead, their minds became inextricably linked. And now Philip could both project his will through Brian to make Brian do stuff remotely and then use Brian's brain to give. And then he, when he did that, he could also like use Brian's brains, Brian's brain to give him crazy mental powers of like telekinesis and stuff. It's weird. Yeah, it, Anyhow, it's pretty strange. But basically, Brian is sort of Brian DeWolf. The son is the puppet of Philip DeWolf, the father and he's got crazy telekinetic and mind powers. That's the gist. So during the monologuing, as always, uh, Strange and Spider-Man get free, and there's some super fighting, and our guys are actually semi-outclassed by the Wraith's powers until Iron Man finally shows up with like an anti-psychic helmet, which he jams on Philip's head, which takes out both uh, Philip and the Wraith out completely. So the bad guy's been apprehended, so that's it, right? Yeah, totally. It's done. Nah, buddy. Oh. We go to Marvel Team Up 51 from November 1976. The Trial of the Wraith. Bill Mantlo, writer. Sal Busema and Mike Esposito, art. Irving Watanabe, letterer. Janice Cohen, colors. Archie Goodwin, editor. And this should be a quick one. It's time for a rare actual trial of a supervillain. We never see this. Yeah, that's a bit strange. And also, that like they're putting a dude on trial who's like completely catatonic. Well, that's the gist of the court cases. My um, basically is like they aren't at in front of a jury; they're in front of a five-judge panel, and they're arguing that Brian can't be held responsible for his son's supervillaining. Um, so everybody's there. Uh, you know, there's some Shield agents and Iron Man and Doctor Strange sort of working security. Uh, Spider-Man's there in his civilian clothes and shooting shooting pictures of the courtroom while J. Jonah Jameson yells at everybody. Awesome. That's exactly what that courtroom needs is more J. Jonah. It's really like he just hates everything and yells at everybody. <laughs> and it's crazy to the point where um, eventually, actually, no, two pages in, basically, uh, Peter Parker gets tired of Jonah, of Jameson's antics and just jams his camera in Jameson's chest and is like, you take the pictures, I'm out of here. I just want to say that I love how much... I, I okay yes this is a Doctor Strange podcast but I'm gonna take like a slight tangent and just say I love how consistent the J Jonah Jameson character has remained over the years. oh yeah man there's there's only been like one or two moments where he's had like a brief moment of levity but it's usually like when the world's ending but his his characters remained just absolutely consistent for years and years and years and just... if there is levity man J Jonah Jameson's hilarious yeah like he's the perfect. Um, just a regular guy who hates superheroes and wants to make and wants wants the world to go back the way it used to be. Basically. But yeah, th those moments of levity only happen when the world's ending, like actually ending. Yeah. Like the one reoccurring thing of your Marvel six one six J Jonah Jameson is that for every one time that you think he's a good guy, there's at least twenty more like, times where he's just an absolute jerk. And then he immediately like drops the hammer. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Like. He'll t like you'll, you'll go out to lunch and he'll confess that you're the best reporter he's got and that he really respects your uh, journalistic acumen and stuff. And then he'll get up and make you pay for the lunch, yep. you know, <laughs> amazingly consistent. <laughs> but so the oh, uh, the, the other thing that's going on in this court case is there's some primitive video conferencing going on, which is pretty crazy, like uh, both like Matt Murdock and um, a.k.a. Daredevil and Nick Fury, Agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., are going to be wa watching in on this case. But so after telling J.J.J. to 
go spin. Uh, Parker, <laughs> Peter Parker changes into his uh, Spider-Man duds, like, and returns to the courtroom kind of stealthily. And it's a good thing, too, because Philip DeWolf has managed to learn to not just manipulate his son, but also other people psychically, including the S.H.I.E.L.D. agent standing next to the power outlet for the psychic-blocking helmet. Which then, that, that helmet explodes. It doesn't come off, it just explodes. I think it's exploded by the power of Philip DeWolf's crazy man hair and mustache. Because <laughs> he looks he's so looks so crazy. Oh, yeah. But so Philip takes control of Brian again. And there's a big fight in the courtroom, culminating in Brian animating the very floor and walls of the courtroom into a big monster. Eventually, the three heroes defeat the monster and knock Brian unconscious so Philip can't control him. And it's decided the only way to depower Philip once and for all is for Doctor Strange to heal Brian by magically removing a bullet lodged in his neck in the middle of the courtroom using magic. <laughs> he succeeds and Brian's back to normal. <laughs> right. Sure. That that makes sense, yeah. Uh but the trial must go on. And it's actually a pretty star studded affair, like besides our three our three heroes, uh, Spider and Iron Man and Doctor Strange. There's guest testimony from Daredevil, or I guess Matt Murdock, uh, Nick Fury, Professor X of the X-Men, and even a moon dragon who's like a sorceress from Titan. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Basically, they're trying to prove that Brian isn't responsible for the crimes Philip committed when he was mentally controlling Brian. The court eventually decides to rule that meant... Uh, uh, the court... Sorry. The court eventually declines to rule that mental powers are real, despite the literal created by mental powers and destroyed by the monster growing out of the floor of the courtroom. But they do acknowledge that Brian was control that sorry, that Philip was controlling Brian somehow, and they absolve Brian of the crimes. It's also a heavily implied that the Council of Five Judges also has telekinetic powers. What? What? Any- anyway. This issue ends with the Hulk angrily jumping towards New York. We won't see how Spider-Man deals with him, but we will see his impact on the Defenders in about two issues. First, oh wait, also, uh, there's a commercial in this um, comic for uh, Hostess Cupcakes that features Thor in Asgard, and there's some new god that's demanding tribute in the form of Hostess Cupcakes, and people are giving them to him, and then it turns out to be like Loki... And Thor's like, you will not impersonate a god for the purposes of cupcake accrual. Over the years, there's always been like these various advertisements in the middle of comics for whatever, and I love every single one of them. There's some good one, man. But this one ends with long live Thor, god of thunder and son of Odin. Long live the moist cake and creamy filling of hostess cupcakes. (laughs) All right. So let's go to Defenders 41. All right. Uh, Defenders 41. From November 1976. Intruder in the Sand. Steve Gerber, writer. Sal Buscema and Klaus Johnson, artist. D. Wall, letterer. D. Warfield, colorist. And A. Goodwin, editor. That's uh, Denise, Don, and Archie in that order. Yep. (laughs) Yes, this is Steve Gerber's final Defenders issue, man. Oh, man. And this one feels like it was written actually pretty early in his run because it covers stuff that happened during the course of Giant Size Defenders 5, which is like before Guardians of the Galaxy, before Sons of the Serpent, and before the last like 10, like 11 issue plot line with the Headman and Nebulon and stuff. Yeah. 
It just kind of so like our opening panel is like this big battle scene of like what's going on or what will be going on. Yeah, comics tradition. Yep, all kinds of crazy stuff happening. Uh, so we open up on the uh, the northernmost ranch of the Defenders. No, 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 this is like way out in the southwest, actually. Oh, my mistake. Okay, this is way out in the southwest. Yeah. Where... The dry desert dunes billowing in their wake. The hired limousine departs Nevada's dune people commune, having deposited its passengers. Two big city dudes from back east. Yep, meeting up with uh, David Anthony. Some random dude. Yep. And of course... Uh, both Stephen Strange and Cal Richmond are inquisit- are asking about the what happened to Trish Starr. Yeah, who will recall from Giant Size Defenders Five was um, Nighthawk's girlfriend who lost her arm in a car bomb explosion caused by the supervillain Egghead because Egghead was like Trish Starr's uncle. Sure, and he like was jealous of her success as a model or something, so he just wanted to maim her. And Egghead's the worst. Yeah, no, he's the worst villain. Absolutely the worst. He'll show up later tonight. Yeah, he will. <laughs> but so at the end of that episode, of that issue of Giant Size Defenders 5, Trish Starr sort of left New York and was going to try to find herself. And apparently she found herself among a bunch of uh, filthy hippies in Nevada. Yeah. Hanging out at a ranch, doing ranch stuff. Just, you know, being a like general health to society, like practicing her mysticism and meditation with tarot cards and stuff like that. Yeah, she got tired of bored of that, so she turned to mysticism. Yep. All right. Yeah. <laughs> and then one day she just suddenly said, you know, declares, I see it. I see the structure. I see it all. <laughs> and then she wandered off just into the dunes, man. Yeah. That's what you do. She saw some stuff. Yeah. So uh, Dr. Strange and, and Kyle Richmond pile into a dune buggy and head out into the sands. And, of course, uh, Kyle Richmond completely disregards listening to Doctor Strange about what he should be doing. And they crash into a force field. As you do. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So Doctor Strange goes into it goes astral form to investigate the force field. Where he finds uh, Tristar. Yeah. On your standard, you know, Doctor Strange, um, like planetscape full of uh, floating rocks and comets and stuff. Yeah, and there she is just kind of standing on a planetoid. Yeah. She's in a trance. He grabs her. He uh, what? He zaps the demons guarding her yep. and brings her back to the to Earth magically. Hooray! Yay! Everything's fine now, right? I mean, it's pretty fine if you don't count the fact that living inside Trish Star's head is the evil Shazana. Oh no! Yeah, the evil sorceress from episode two of this very podcast. <laughs> with she's the one who. Uh, had these had a crazy pigtail based haircut and had taken control of their of a nameless of a, of a nameless realm and a nameless time from her unnamed sister. And so she imprisons both Doctor Strange and Nighthawk and uh, Tristar and Tristar in, into yeah. like a weird cube. Yeah, and then she brings out her um, you know demon hordes and they just sort of start general world domination type things. Yeah, the standard stuff. Meanwhile, back in New York. Yeah, they, they everybody in the defend, in Defenders Town receives a psychic message. Except for Jack North. Yeah, actually, this sort of is another kind of proof that, like, this story isn't really in part of continuity. Like, Hulk's there um, looking at stuff. Jack Norris is still around and stuff. He's still around and not being such an annoying jerk. I mean, he just doesn't have a chance to, basically. Yeah. I'm sure if they had, he had more, like, you know, time, he would be a jerk like he is. Yeah, but so... They get a mental, the Defenders get a mental call from Doctor Strange, and, you know, things are looking bad for the team, but then suddenly, uh, Clea teleports everybody to the ranch, and it's big fight time. Yep. 
Things go pretty well for the Defenders, you know. See, Doctor Strange and Nighthawk free themselves from the cube with the help of uh, Clea. Yeah, and the Defenders beat the bad guys. Doctor Strange banishes Shazana back to her dimension and kind of creates a barrier so she can't come back ever again. And I don't think... (laughs) I don't think she would, no, no, sorry. She'll be back like once more in like the 80s or something like that. Mm. Like she's not, you know, this is not really an A-list bad guy. And so Nighthawk uh, comforts uh, Tristar after her encounter with all this madness. Yeah, time for some uh, one-armed macking, basically. Oh, uh, yeah. That, that's it. That's it. <laughs> Which uh, brings us to... Yeah, to Marvel Treasury Edition 12 from January 1st, 1976. Oh, man, Drew. Oh, man. So, okay. Here it comes. I'm going to, I want to explain this before I get too far into it, okay? Yeah, go ahead. So, these treasury editions from Marvel are usually their reprints of, like, Marvel, of, of Marvel characters. They ran from, like, 1974 to 1981, and there actually are editions for both Doctor Strange and the Defenders. But those are all 100% reprints of stuff we've already covered. Although the Doctor Strange Marvel Treasury Edition is on my on my Christmas list because it, it's kind of cool. Because <laughs> these comics are huge. They're like 10 inches by 14 inches. Right. Which is, in comparison to like a normal comic of this era, is like 7 inches by 10 inches, basically. So it's like 4 inches on each side. And... That doesn't sound like much, but when you kind of put them together, they're re- it's really big. Yeah, it's and not the, like in, not to mention the fact that this thing is clocking in at a, at a buck fifty for the cover price. Dude, it's it's so expensive. Because yeah. like the to, to give you an idea, like the comic we just read, right? December uh, Defenders forty one costs thirty cents. That that is massive. And the annual and the Defenders annual that was fifty cents. We, we read earlier this issue is 50 cents and that's like a double sized issue. Like usually these things are like 18 pages and the annual is like 30 pages or no 36 pages. That's why the recap for it was so long. So, so, <laughs> but this, so, but this one is like three times the cost of that annual. A buck 25 is incredibly expensive. Yeah. So it's basically on par with like trade paperbacks. What you would see today of like a collected uh, edition. I mean, I feel like it's basically the, the equivalent of a trade paperback. I don't know if they had like that sort of concept or this is a trade paperback that they'd sell on a newsstand basically yeah but yeah i don't i really don't think that like trade paperbacks were actually a thing until probably like the late 80s early 90s. that seems reasonable yeah. but so like i said they're usually reprints but not always there's a treasury edition like where hulk and spider-man go to the 1980 winter olympics and that's all new and there's like the final treasury edition which is a rematch between Spider Spider-Man and Superman and also having a lot of new content is this Marvel Treasury edition. Oh, here it comes. Marvel Marvel Treasury edition number 12. Here it comes. For Howard the Duck. Oh, Dutch. yes. <laughs> and in this case brings us to the story, The Duck and the Defenders. Steve Gerber writer, Sal Buscema and Klaus Janssen artist, Joe Rosen letterer. Marie Severin, colorist. This is the last hurrah of Steve Gerber for, um, for, I think, for the rest of the podcast, actually. And also a special guest appearance by Marie Severin, who is, of course, my favorite Silver Age author. But yeah, man, Howard the Duck. <laughs> it's important to remember that in, like, 1975 or something, when Howard the Duck premiered, it was an incredibly popular comic. Like, the, pre- the uh, pre-sales for it were the highest, like, in history. 
And because of that, Marvel basically had to scramble and be like, oh my gosh, we got to cover this Howard the Duck guy. And like, even though there's not a lot of content for him, so they had to like make a new, make some new stuff for this treasury edition and just do all this stuff to kind of capitalize for this incredibly popular brand new character, you know? Some bad things like, I'm, like a certain movie that came out. I mean, that's definitely the backdrop for if you, you know, if you ever wonder, you know, if you ever listen to a bad movie podcast and you just kind of wonder vaguely, like, why did they make a Howard the Duck movie at all? It's because he's got this background of being an immensely popular character whose popularity has sort of been forgotten, has sort of gone down the memory hole with the terribleness of that movie. You know, until a few years ago with Guardians of the Galaxy and their after credits uh, scene. Yeah, man, that's like, I mean, you know, there's just something fun about him. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but so let's get to this. Con- so, uh, so the other thing to know, I guess, is that not unlike Ruby Thursday in The Defenders, uh, Howard has decided to declare his candidacy for president of the United States, despite, again, it being very late in the year. He likely not being over 35, and he's definitely not a natural-born citizen. He's from, like, another dimension. Whatever, man. Get down, America. That's his uh, presidential slogan. Anyway, let's get to the comic. <laughs> so this story is very silly, but also kind of fun, and it gives you an idea of sort of other crazy stuff Steve Gerber's doing in the Marvel Universe. So we open with a prologue called Five Villains in Search of a Plot. (laughs) And from what I understand from sort of outside reading, these bad guys are all parodies of characters that Steve Gerber found particularly annoying and unimaginative in current comics. There's a sitting bullseye who is a Native American pastiche with a large target tattooed on his chest, which is sort of a send-up of, you know, general sort of Native American characters in comics that are all, you know, have bow and arrow abilities and war bonnets and things like that. Um, then there's Tilly the Hun, a, uh, who I think is just a general dig at uh, the character Red Sonia. There's the Spanker, a corporal punishment-themed dig at the Punisher. There's a black hole, a parody of Nova with a giant sucking hole in his chest, leading to the obvious pun of the black hole sucks. <laughs> and uh, Doctor Dr- and uh, Doctor Anks, who is, from what I understand, a play on the character Mordred the Mystic, who a lot of people at the time saw as basically a copy of Doctor Strange, but with a lot more self-pity and drabness. So, anyhow, these five minor bad guys are teaming up as the Band of Bland to assassinate presidential candidate Howard the Duck. Oh, no! The all-night parties uh, candidate. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah, that's true. Maybe he got on there because he was just um, part of a... Of a, 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 a existing political party or something. That could, I, I don't know. It's weird. Anyhow. Uh, oh boy. Anyhow, uh, speaking of the uh, so the uh, presumed presidential candidate, uh, Howard and his girlfriend uh, Beverly, Leah Thompson from the movie, are getting t- uh, tossed out of a hotel uh, because apparently they don't have any money, and they just assumed they did because he was a presidential candidate. And they go to crash at one of Bev's friends' places in Greenwich Village and turn up on the doorstep of Doctor Strange and the Defenders after getting bad directions from Mary Jane Watson and Peter Parker because, like, 30 people live in Marvel New York City top. Yeah, it's not even that much. <laughs> so, anyhow, while they're in there, um, the Sanctum is attacked by the Band of Bland. 
Uh, Dr. Angst's uh, super abilities are all very like mundane and weird and often very pun-based. He's got a tray of all-seeing ice, is all I, I want to say. <laughs> His uh, Eucharitz crackers. Yeah, uh, and he, uh, he traps everyone in the sanctum by, by, by surrounding it in a huge box of shredded wheat. <sighs> yeah, so the sanctum is attacked by the band of Bland, and Doctor Strange is knocked out. He uh, gifts his powers to Howard, to Howard the Duck temporarily. And Howard actually looks kind of cute with, um, he's got like a Donald Duck style Doctor Strange outfit, you know, so no pants. Yeah, no, no but pants, he, but he has like, the gloves and like the... And the cloak and all that yeah. stuff. So uh, the defenders end up beating the band up pretty handily. And they just kind of give up in the end, despite everybody transporting to Shea Stadium suddenly and fighting it out like in the stands among football players and things like that. Yeah, that was weird. That was a really weird transition. But there is a really awesome part where um, the Hulk rips up the AstroTurf from the ground and knocks everybody over. It's it's the old like pulling the carpet out from under them gag. Totally, but it's like it's the ground. Yeah. <laughs> And so, you know, but eventually the band of Bland kind of realizes that they're awful and they all surrender and just sort of get carried away by the cops. The cops that the uh, black hole had previously sucked into his chest earlier in the episode. <laughs> he sort of expels them and then he and then they take them away, basically. Uh... And um, that's basically it for this story. You know, it's time to just move on to another place for Howard the Duck. Uh, this issue also contains Howard the Duck stories from some Man-Thing comics and Fear comics, including the story of a, a vampire cow. But frankly, that's all stuff for sort of a different podcast, possibly some sort of Howard the Duck recap podcast. <laughs> it's not my purview. <laughs> and with those um, anthropomorphic antics, we're at the halfway point of the episode. Drew, let's take a quick break. Right. And we'll come back for... Incredible Hulk and Defenders Action. Do you believe in magic in a young girl's heart? How the music can free her whenever it starts. And it's magic if the music is groovy and makes you feel happy like an old time movie. I'll tell you about the magic and the free old soul. But it's like trying to tell a stranger about a rock and roll. If you believe in magic. Alright, we're back. I'm Conrad, that's Drew, and we are Stranger by the Dozen. Email the show at strangerbythedozen.com. Find us on Twitter, strangerbythe12, Tumblr, strangerbythedozen.tumblr.com. Facebook, Instagram, Stranger by the Dozen. Write a five-star review, we'll read it on the show, all that good stuff. Let's get back to it with Incredible Hulk, number 206, from December 1976. A man brute berserk. Uh, Len Wein, writer-editor, Sal Buscema and Joe Stanton, illustrators, Glynis Wine, colorist, John Costanza, letterer. Okay, so uh, here's like the Hulk backstory I was talking about a little earlier. So if you're a, a casual Hulk fan, like I am basically, you probably think of him as dating Betsy Ross, who is played by Liv Tyler in the most recent Hulk movie and is the daughter of Hulk nemesis General Thunderbolt Ross. But that's not 
necessarily always the case. For a pretty long period in the 70s, uh, Bruce Banner and or the Hulk were involved with a green-skinned blonde lady named Jarella. Jarella lived in a microscopic city inside the brain of a supporting character in the Hulk comic. Uh, don't stress out about it. <laughs> and she had fallen in love with both the Hulk, with Banner's brain in control, regular Bruce Banner, and the regular Hulk. Fair enough. Sure, why not? Yeah, but just last, last issue or so in the Incredible Hulk comics... A building fell on her and she died. Oh, no. Yeah, it's a total bummer. Uh, but wait a second, because as I'm sure you'd think, Drew, immediately, and I would too, which is, hey, death isn't as big a deal as it used to be in the olden days, not in comic book world. Everybody, like, dies and comes back to life, especially if you happen to be buds with the most powerful magician on Earth. Yeah, man. Like, we all know that nobody dies in the Marvel Universe except for Uncle Ben. Yeah, and theoretically, like like Bucky and Gwen Stacy, but not even those guys, thanks to the mysteries of uh, Soviet freeze technology and or dimensional gates. Yeah. So, you know, why not bring Jarella back? Why not, indeed? Oh, really? Why not? <laughs> yeah, that's what Hulk wants to know. So he basically jumped from, like, Arizona to New York City to get Doctor Strange's help. All right. And that's what he's doing when he was jumping into New York at the end of Marvel Team-Up. So, Hulk's uh, jumping across the country. The trip is not uneventful, as uh, a couple fighter jets sort of hassle him, and the Hulk has to destroy them as well. And eventually, he gets to New York City and rips the arm off the Statue of Liberty and throws it at some police helicopters. <laughs> yeah, apparently, um, future Marvel writer, or future Marvel and, like, Marvel's writer, Kurt uh, Busiek, Buzwick would um, write in as an angry comics reader and be like, hey, like you never showed it to anybody fixing the statue arm when the Hulk did this. What's up? <laughs> and Marvel responded like, oh, no, we did it in one page on a, a Nova comic. Like, quit your complaining. <laughs> so anyhow, um, after sharing some booze with a wino and realizing that he didn't like the taste of booze, so whatever... Uh, Hulk arrives at the Sanctum Sanctorum, but can't enter because Doctor Strange is out of town and has erected like a force field around it. So there ends up just being kind of a, a sad panel of the Hulk morosely sitting on the curb waiting for Doctor Strange to come back. Like, oh. And then we sort of pan out and you see that he's completely surrounded by like a police barricade and cop cars and stuff. But, you know, Hulk, as always, just wants to be left alone. And the, cops, and, and, and the cops won't let him. And so eventually uh, the tension causes the cop to fire off a shot and all hell breaks loose. Uh, cop, uh, Hulk takes out a bunch of police cars, leads the authorities on a huge chase across the city, throwing air conditioners and stuff at them. Until finally on a rooftop, he is confronted by dun, 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 the rest of the defenders. And we jump immediately to Incredible Hulk 207 from January 1977, alone against the Defenders. Uh, Len Wein, again, writer-editor, Salvatore and Joe Stanton, illustrators, Glynis Wine, colorist, Irving Watanabe, letterer. So this one is, so both of these are fast, but this one's fast because there's a ton of action, basically. Um, the Defenders confront Hulk about his rampage, but because Hulk, the Hulk is pretty bad at words and sort of object permanence, he can't explain what's going on, so instead he just sort of destroys everything around him. Um, 
And as the defenders sort of respond and like protect the cops from getting crushed by collapsing buildings and stuff, Doctor Strange lets slip that he's no longer Sorcerer Supreme. Yeah, we'll talk about it in depth next episode, I promise you. So Hulk and the Defenders have a pretty awesome series of fights around New York. Doctor Strange binds the Hulk in a magical rubber band ball, and the Hulk bounces away. Hulk takes out part of an elevated highway and soundly beats Valkyrie with her own sword, and then almost smashes Nighthawk to bits until Birdnose is able to talk him down. Eventually, though, Hulk manages to explain about Jarella's death to the team, and Doctor Strange agrees to check and see if anything can be done. But bad news, it's too late, and Jarella is dead, and it's just a huge bummer. Uh, the Hulk rages through the Sanctum, and then sort of skips straight to the depression stage of grief as he breaks down crying in Valkyrie's arms. He's moving pretty, pretty fast through the, all the stages of acceptance. Yeah, well, he did them kind of out of order because I feel like getting your magician buddy to try to bring him back is totally bargaining and stuff like that. Yeah. But so afterwards, Hulk kind of com- composes himself and walks out uh, and walks out of the room. And he's just really like calm and cold. He doesn't know what to do with himself, but he wants to be alone. And I feel really bad for the Hulk here. Yeah. He's like, like there's this one, there's this one, uh, there's this one panel where the Hulk has sort of stopped crying. It's just sort of like you see his face, and he's not like full of anger or like huge emotion like the Hulk normally is. He's just sort of like a little morose, empty, I guess. Yeah, it's a bummer, man. But thus are the wages of the Hulk. He's like Conan, you know, uh, gigantic mirths, gigantic melancholies. <laughs> and speaking of gigantic mirths, <laughs> let's go to Defenders 42 from December 1976, uh, which I'm going to tell you right now opens with Nighthawk spontaneously combusting. <laughs> Damn, Conrad. I, you, you, took, you, took my, you took my line. Oh, I'm sorry. It's all, it's all good. And in this corner, the new emissaries of evil, uh, Gary Conway, writer-editor, Gr- Keith Griffin, and Klaus Jansen, artist and storytellers, Giffen. Keith Giffen, uh, Jay Kazanza, letterer, and Kay Jansen, colorist. John and Klaus. So, oh, just by the way, uh, here, Jerry Conway is a longtime Spider-Man writer who was Marvel editor-in-chief after Marv Wolfman, but before Archie Goodwin. Although that hasn't been reflected in like the long line, the log lines of the defenders. Also, something else is, for what I've read, apparently um, Jerry Conway sort of wrote the basic action and had um, Giffen and 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 Jansen sort of write it out and stuff, but didn't give them any idea, any notes about any kind of dialogue. So basically, the two of them had to sort of figure out the dialogue from what sort of the layout the layouts of these stories oh, were, which is why some of the, uh, some of the credits for this thing are a little weird, <laughs> but yeah, man, sorry, go ahead. <clears throat> so like any typical Friday night in the city, you know, pe- people are out at restaurants or the theater, or maybe, you know, catch a ball game or something, maybe go down to the bar, but nah, if you're part of the defenders, you're going to sit in your living room, and watch the Nighthawk burst into flame. <laughs> yeah, man, <laughs> it's good. <laughs> So anyway, Nighthawk bursts, bursts into flame. And everybody freaks yep. out, and they realize that he's being hit by, like, a heat beam from the street. Heat beam from the street coming from Solar, master of solar flame. Two R's in Solar, yeah. be aware. Yeah, in both Solar, <laughs> like both Solar and Solar Flame. 
Yeah, well, why wouldn't it be? <laughs> you, you know, get it right. Otherwise, you don't want to get deep fried like your beak nose dissociate. It's true. But so, he, yeah, so Solar is there and he demands the star of Kapistan from the Defenders or everyone will perish. And everyone's like, we have no idea what you're talking about, buddy. I don't know what that is. <laughs> and so they fight. Oh, yeah. But then the rhino shows up. Oh, man. I love this. I love this. These two guys because they're so different. It's, it's a- like one's an energy projecting like fireman, basically. And the other is just a dude, a, a, a big dude in a rhino costume. It's, it's, it's a pairing that you would never expect. Hey, only in uh, the mighty age of Marvel, my yeah. friend. So anyway, the defenders go toe to toe with uh, both the rhino and Solar. Yeah, and it goes pretty good. I don't know. They beat them pretty effectively, I'd say. They do, yeah. They do take it. Um, they do take it down pretty handily, you know. And uh, Solar takes off once he figures out they don't actually have the the gem they're talking about, even though they're basically like we have no idea what you're talking about. Yeah, and so they uh, teleport away. Also, Drew can't help but notice something here. What's up? That Valkyrie back to the original costume. Oh, yep, there it is. <laughs> no more, no more gold costume for her. Yeah. So the bad guys uh, beam back onto a spaceship flying high above the North Pole. Yep. Being run by being by, by Egghead. Oh man, damn! Like when I was first, uh, I'm just gonna like it, say it, admit this. Please. When I was first reading this uh, comic and I was coming going, going over those panels, I was like, oh, wait, is that Thanos? No, it's not Thanos. It's Egghead. No, it's some other big guy sitting in a chair in the shadows. Oh man, Egghead. Worse. Yeah, especially because the last time we saw, although he's actually like made a move, because the last time we saw Egghead, he was a bum on the street getting kicked out of a flop house for being a jerk, basically. Oh. He's still a jerk. Yeah, he's just a jerk who's managed to steal a NASA space lab and use it for evil. And now he's holding Solar and the Rhino in stasis to use like them as his tools of destruction. Yeah, to find the star of Kapistan, which is apparently the largest ruby on Earth. And is like a sacred, uh, a, a jewel sacred to the secret Pakistani religious cult. Yeah. Yeah, sure. As you do. Right. <laughs> Yeah, he's positive that Doctor Strange has it, but he's wrong. No. You know, so whatever. Doctor Strange does not have it. Yeah. But uh, the... So, smash cut. Smash cut. Uh, back to the Defenders, or to the... To the hospital. NYU Medical Night Center. Hawk's getting get, getting, uh, getting treated for solar burns. Where a uh, an assistant to uh, Omar Karandu, an old friend of Stephen Strange, uh, seeks out Stephen, Doctor Strange to bring him a message saying... Yeah, apparently. Apparently, they last met like in between the lines of when when Doctor Strange was on the run from a Dormammu-powered Baron Mordo way back in Strange Tales number one thirty-six on episode three of the podcast when Doctor Strange was sort of on this world tour on the run. Yep. And so uh, Omar Kandu invites him to like this uh, apartment hotel thing. Yeah. And shows him the star of. Kapistan. Star of Kapistan, which entrances Stephen Strange. Oh, no. He gets a, a ruby-shaped pupil, and it's real bad. Like, oh, no. Everything's bad. Meanwhile, yeah. we see the Hulk hanging out in the park, crushing yeah. crushing benches just sitting there. Well, I mean, as always ha- always, always happens when someone's in the hospital, the Hulk can't go in. Yeah. Like, the Hulk's noticeable. He's big, and he's green, and he doesn't have shoes on. It's not sanitary. <laughs> so... So he's got to wait outside. So yeah, he's hanging outside, and like some blue hands come up from the ground, and, like start grabbing at him, and it is totally Cobalt Man. Cobalt Man, who's back from back from the dead, or something, man. Cobalt Man's weird. Yeah, 
by not the least of it that Cobalt Man looks like a blue member of some sort of um like the 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 club football team for a nuclear power plant basically. Yeah. Like he's got the ball like his helmet has one has like a uh, a bar on it that like a kicker on a football team has basically yeah, like a, a simple face mask grill. So the rest of the defenders realize what's going down and take on uh, Cobalt Man with the Hulk. Yeah. Until they realize that Cobalt Man is about to explode. Oh no. Which brings us to Defenders 43 from January of 1977. Good year. I mean, it's okay. It's like Star Wars, I guess. <laughs> but that's not, for, that's not for yonks. It's months away. Which brings us to This World is Mine. Uh, Jerry Conway, writer-editor. Keith Giffen and Klaus yes. Janssen, artists and storytellers. I Wantanabe and Klaus Janssen, uh, letter and colorer, respectively. Irving wants an <laughs> And so we see uh, Eggman and Solar and the Rhino up in the spaceship viewing. Egghead, man. Eggman is who Sonic fights. You know, these two are really interchangeable in my mind. They're pretty. No, nah, man, because Eggman has that sweet mustache and Egghead just has glasses. <laughs> they both have egg-shaped heads. Anyway. It's true. <laughs> they're up in their, their space station watching what's happening with a Cobalt Man about to explode and take out yeah. a good chunk of New York, more than likely. Yeah. So these so Nighthawk and the Hulk sort of team up and they do what you always do when something's about to explode in comic books, just throw it in the river. Yeah. That seems like a reasonable. Yeah. It cools down Cobalt Man. They they can recover him. And there's a there's a pretty funny part where um Nighthawk's flying over the river and he asks Hulk what happens and Hulk says, uh, Blue Man stopped glowing, bird nose. And Hulk is wet. And Hulk is wet. It's <laughs> pretty good. <laughs> just I've I've noticed a pattern that Hulk doesn't really seem to like to be wet. I mean, who does, yeah. you know? Yeah. Well, okay. Let's not get into it. <laughs> and, but, but so uh, Egghead has received some in new information about where the star of Kapistan is. And sends uh, both and, Rhino and Solar down to the hotel where Doctor Strange was last seen. Yeah. But they're both confronted by... Uh, the Red Raja. This dude in gold armor and, like, just... He looks pretty badass. Yeah, he's got a red turban and, like, a big uh, scarf kind of thing. Yeah. He's pretty cool. Yeah, pretty awesome. And, and he beats Solar and Rhino at their own game. He out-energy blasts Solar, and he gets big and out-shoulder tackles the Rhino. Yep, it's pretty badass. Yeah, it's good. Meanwhile, back at the Sanctum Sanctorum. Yeah, there's some weird machinery in the Sanctum Sanctorum. Yeah. That's basically just mind. It's it's a mind, it's a mind meld table. Yeah, sure. That is going to it's, meld the minds a, of uh, the red, the red guardian and cobalt man. Yeah, so it's a good it's a good color combo, man. Red and gold yeah. or red blue. It's nice. Good. But this it's this machine that like is just sort of two people lie on either side, and there's a thing in the middle that clay operates, and they kind of magic it up, you know. And of course, while this is going on, uh, Egghead transports inside the Sanctum Sanctorum and attacks Hulk with this egg-based weapon that traps Hulk. Yeah, it's basically, we like, the top two-thirds of the page is Egghead sort of infiltrating the Sanctum Sanctorum and in turn taking out the different defenders, while on the bottom third of the page, Cobalt Man sort of gives us his life story, you know? As he was like some dude who wanted to imitate Iron Man. Yeah, he starts off with basically, basically his blue Iron Man, and then he fights the X-Men, he fights the Hulk. Like, the the radiation from his armor like twisted his mind and drove him insane. Hey, as you do, yeah, you know. Sure, why not? Meanwhile, um, Egghead throws a giant expanding plastic bag at the Hulk <laughs> and, like, electrically charges the sword of Valkyrie, paralyzing her. 
Uh, Throws a crazy egg bolo at Nighthawk, tying him up. And then tries to (laughs) throw an egg thing at Luke Cage, and just nothing happens. Yeah, he underestimated Luke Cage's excellence, which is very, which is easy to do because Luke Cage is so excellent. Such a badass. (laughs) That he'll, he'll lull you into a false sense of security with like his metal headband and uh, swashbuckler boots. And his, then just his rad chain belt. Yeah. And then just punch the hell out of you. And in this case, he punches Egghead so hard that he goes flying into the arms of Cobalt Man, who's realized that Egghead has been using him and he's not pleased about it. So instead, Cobalt Man hugs Egghead hard to his chest and uses his nuclear explosion powers to implode, I guess. Then the two of them just kind of disappear into a big cloud of dust. So, I don't know, you know, whelp, I guess. Yeah, takes care of Egghead (laughs) and Cobalt Man. They're just gone. That's the end of that chapter. (laughs) Which takes us to our next issue. Uh, Defenders 44 from February 1977. The Rage of the Raja. (laughs) Roger Silver and David Kraft dialogue. Uh, Keith Giffen and Klaus Janssen art. John Costanza letters. uh, Glennis Wine colors. And Jerry Conway story and editor. And we start out this this issue with uh, Hulk just going berserk and knocking people around the Sanctum Sanctorum. Yeah, he's v- keenly aware that Doctor Strange hasn't been back in a long time. And so his his normal his his perfectly rational response is to just wreck shop. <laughs> yeah, just to start taking down walls and yelling at everybody. You know, where is magician? Blah blah blah. And everyone's like, like Hulk, ch- chill out. But also, you have a point. You have a point, man, but just chill out. And, and of course, our, our favorite friend, uh, Jack Norris, shows up again. Just bring us down. Bring us all down. To make one last impassioned plea for, for Valkyrie to... Uh, yeah, this is like, the, the I swear to God, like the eighth time that this exact scenario has taken, out, has, has taken place. Because Jack shows up, he goes up to Valkyrie, he's like, Hey, Barbara, you're my wife, and I'm your husband, and I love you. And you should stop being a superhero, and we should go back to being married and stuff. And Valkyrie always responds the exact same way, which is, um, I have your wife's body, but I'm not Barbara Norris. I'm Valkyrie. Barbara Norris's mind was destroyed by extra-dimensional demons, and I was, and I'm currently possessing her body at the behest of the Enchantress from Asgard. And of course, uh, Nighthawk is like, dude, I gave you three hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. But I mean, but I I just want to get back to Valkyrie here because she's basically she keeps saying I'm not your wife I don't want to go with you I don't like you that way leave me alone and Jack Norris can't take the hint and like I want to be clear that like even if Valkyrie wasn't a grafted on spirit like mystical being from Asgard or whatever if she was just literally Barbara Norris pretending like or not not pretending but like wearing a superhero costume and doing superhero That's things still a really messed up the thing to say. Well, well, no, but like her, um, her decision to be Valkyrie and not to hang out with her husband is totally valid, and this guy should take a hand. Yeah, you know, like this guy should like, like not be such a jerk. Yeah, like like that's why I'm so down on Jack Norris because he doesn't. I feel like he doesn't really add anything. They just have this same conversation over and over again, and it's really like I don't know. I it's really like. It makes it, it makes Valkyrie sort of seem mean because she keeps sort of saying no to this guy, but he's the jerk. Like he just keep, he he won't take no for an answer, and I find that really like uncool for a character. No, no, you know what I, I mean? I understand completely because like it's it's tedious. 
And like, but like, especially because Jack Norris lives in a world full of monsters and gods, you know, and it's been, it's been shown to him again and again, that this is not his wife. Valkyrie can do things that Barbara never could. Um, I believe Jack's actually met like the Enchantress and stuff like that. Oh no, he hasn't, but still like, you know, all this stuff is valid. Like, you know, like Thor's out there, man. The Fantastic Four's out there. Like, you know that this stuff is possible and you like, at some point you got to take her at her word. And at some point, you've got to stop grabbing her arm when she tells you, like, if you touch me again, I'll cut your arm off, you know? It's like, dude, I understand. Like, you need to you need to accept the fact that your wife is gone and just move on. Yeah. But so, anyhow. Yeah. Anyway. Thoroughly chasing as Jack Norris walks out of the Sanctum Sanctorum, some sort of mysterious figure comes to him. Jack Norris is like, you, no, and runs away. And I say, good. Yep. <laughs> yep. So anyhow, afterwards, uh, the male, the uh, the uh, three male defenders, uh, Nighthawk, Hulk, and Luke Cage, go to investigate the hotel room of Omar Carrito, uh, the uh, the mystical guy. And of course, he's saying that you know, I I think I did a thing. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, like uh, you know. So so your friend Doctor Strange, I might have done a thing. I might have showed him a gem, and then things went wrong. Uh oh. Oops. <laughs> My bad. Anyway, back at uh, back to back at the ranch, back at the Sanctum Sanctorum. Hey, it's Hellcat. All right. Yeah. Yeah. So Hellcat is um, Patsy Walker. So you might you might be or she's sort of in the Marvel movies. Um, or like her civilian identity is the uh, sis- is the uh, adopted sister of Jessica Jones in the Marvel Jessica Jones show. That's like the that's Patsy. Wa- you know, they're both named Patsy Walker, basically. Yeah. But yeah, and so whether she that character ends up being Hellcat or not remains to be seen. But here's hoping, I guess. I don't know. Well, Hellcat's gotten a, a recent comic series, so hey, chances are pretty good. Yeah, and this Hellcat's pretty cool too. She uh, spent some time away from. She's been an Avenger, but has spent some time away from the Avengers, being trained by Moon Dragon, bald Mystic Lady from the planet Titan. <laughs> Super rad. Yeah. And she's recently come back to Earth because there were rumors of some sort of uh, ruby that would cause difficulties. Which... <laughs> and it looks like it has, because suddenly the streets are full of, like, zombie people. Oh, man, it's so bad. And, of course, the the three female defenders go out and check things out to see what's going on. Yeah. And then, of course, we get some backstory in the Red Raja. Meanwhile, we, yeah, we learn about the Red Raja and how Doctor Strange has now is now the Red Raja, the keeper of the ruby and capable of uh, basically hypnotizing people, <laughs> which she totally does. He hypnotizes yeah, every everybody in this hotel suddenly zomb like this big, stares blankly and starts walking towards Central Park. And after a brief scuffle with the the male fen- defenders, he totally brings them under his control. Yeah, now the red uh, now the red Raja follow or the uh, sorry the male defenders follow the sim- the signal of the uh, ruby. To Central Park, where they're overcome by the Red Raja's followers and held in his sway. Now it's up to the Lady Defenders to take him down. Ah, uh, yes, it's it's ladies versus dudes. Hey, it's the fight you never knew you wanted. <laughs> in uh, Defenders issue forty-five from March of nineteen seventy-seven. Yeah, uh, we must free the Defenders. David Kraft and Roger Silver dialogue. Keith Siphon. Gr- Keith Griffin, Giffen. Giffen, and Klaus Jansen art. John Frost, letterer. Jerry Conway, plot. David Hunt, colors. And Archie Goodwin, editor. Yeah. 
Lady Defender versus Gent Defender. It's ladies versus dudes. Let's fight. Yeah. Or, well, first. First, the Red Raja summons a massive stone uh, figure of Doctor Strange. They fight a big rocks, Doctor Strange. Yeah. Which is always good. And the Red Raja attempts to uh, take over the mind of the, the Red Defender. The Red Guardian. The Red Guardian. But fail, fails to do so when Hellcat uh, intercepts. Yeah. The uh, then seemingly overcome by the Red Raja's power, they beat a hasty retreat, bumping into a couple other people whose minds were not affected by the Raja's ability. And we quickly smash cut to goddamn Jack Norris, who is driving away quickly to who knows where. And thank yeah. goodness for that. He's kind of a, ha, ha, has a card chase. Moving on. Moving on. Whatever. <laughs> we we see the uh, Red Raja testing his abilities and has uh, the Hulk just hit both. Uh, uh, Nighthawk, Nighthawk and Luke Cage just whaps them both. And he's like, yes, my powers are working. You only struck to stun, not to kill. That is good. <laughs> so uh, the 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 uh, three distaff defenders <laughs> get back to the sanctum and they call in the big guns in terms of lady defenders. My buddy, Clea. Oh, yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. And so it's, and, it's ladies versus okay. dudes round two. Yeah. This time with all four female defenders, and they stop by the ranch for Valkyrie to pick up uh, Aragorn the Pegasus, so who's now all healed up. And so now it's uh, fight time. As always, everybody pairs up. It's uh, Valkyrie versus Luke Cage, uh, Red Guardian versus Nighthawk, and Hellcat versus the Hulk. Versus the Hulk, which is oh. not the fight I'd pick, nope. but okay. <laughs> Meanwhile, Clea uh, does some crazy like pink outline magic and to reach the mind of Doctor Strange. And uh, eventually does free Doctor Strange, and Doctor Strange destroys the the star of Kapistan. Yeah, There's, and strangely, no brainwashing, which I was pretty surprised by, I gotta There's say. There's a whole lot of, like, lack of brainwashing. Yeah, surprising lack, seeing as how public and crazy all the events of this episode have been for Doctor Strange to not have brainwashed anybody. <laughs> that used to be his go-to move. Yep. But we end the issue with Doctor Strange leaving the Defenders. Oh, no. Oh, no. Yeah. Next episode, the end of the Defenders. What? And that's it for this week. Man, it's sad to see Steve Gerber leave the Defenders. He's been on it for like two years at this point. And it's a real high point of the era, in my opinion. I, and I, okay. I have so many unanswered questions. Well, really, only one unanswered question. Huh? Anyhow. <laughs> It's really, like, just all these, like, especially this most recent, like, year of the comic has just been one steady, like, peak and valley of just things getting crazier and more, like, unusual and complicated and all these different balls up in the air being juggled around and stuff. It's really, I think, pretty masterful comic book writing. It's very fun. Even though he's not explaining the Elf of the Gun thing. I really want to know what's going on with that. So... After At this point, or I guess sort of starting next week, we're going to see Doctor Strange's involvement with the Defenders get a bit more spotty. There'll be some more, like, Defenders and even some, like, all Defenders episodes here and there. But we're really going to start making a move back towards sort of solo Strange and all other kind of crazy things. So, anyhow, if you'd like to contact the podcast, I'd love to hear from you. You can send me an email at strangerbythedozen at gmail.com or interact with the show on Facebook and Instagram at Stranger by the Dozen. Find us on Twitter at Stranger by the Twelve. That's Stranger by the One Two. And on Tumblr on strangerbythedozen.tumblr.com. I'll try to get some images and stuff posted this week, so keep an eye out. 
Stranger by the Dozen is on iTunes, Stitcher, the Google Play Store, and any other podcasting app. And remember, if you leave a five-star review on any platform, I will read it on the show. If you want to contact Drew and tell him how wrong he is or talk about this thing that he keeps talking about, you can find him on Twitter at Neo of the Dark. I just have so many questions about the self of the gun. In our next episode, Doctor Strange leaves the Defenders, but not before adventuring through a mystical dimension with the Hulk. Then, in Solo Strange, at last, the duel of the century, Doctor Strange vs. Dracula. <laughs> Plus, we'll learn about the mystic forces behind American history the backstory of Wong, and see some of the craziest art to date in the comic. Ben Franklin is after your mystical girlfriend on the next episode of Stranger by the Dozen. It's totally not unprecedented, by the way. (laughs) Until next time, faithful listeners, I say, some people spend their Friday evenings at a restaurant or the theater. Others hit a late-night ball game or sip a drink at a neighborhood bar. And a few even stay home to watch the omnipresent and omni-seeing tube. But if you're a member of that loose-knit group called the Defenders, you're apt to be here on your average Friday night. The Greenwich Village townhouse of Doctor Strange. And on this particular Friday, you're probably gaping in horror at the hero known as Nighthawk as he suddenly, inexplicably, bursts into flame. My name is Conrad, and for my buddy Drew, this is Stranger by the Dozen. May the Vishanti guide your path.